Welcome to With You Every Step, the solo travel podcast that explores, explains, and hopefully inspires you to travel the world by yourself. I'm your host, Michelle Lee. Welcome back to With You Every Step. Today, I have a returning guest, and it is Ali Pepper. I don't know if you've listened to our other episodes. If you haven't, you should go back, check them out. She is an Australian mountaineer, and this time she's going to tell us about her attempt to summit Makalu, another 8,000er. This episode is also a special one because this is the anniversary, our first anniversary, one year we've been going. So to have our one-year anniversary, we needed a special guest to return, and we have Ellie Pepper. Thanks, Ellie, for returning. Yay, and happy birthday, Michelle. Oh, thank you. Today I am <laughs> one year older as well. <laughs> I'm one year older. One year older, That's just so one. Funny. Just one. <laughs> You're not going to say your age, obviously. No, don't need to talk about my age yeah, anymore. <laughs> That's okay. Well, thanks for having me back. Thank you for returning and I'm glad to have you back so we can hear about your latest summit attempt. Mm-hmm. So tell me about it. I was looking to climb a mountain called Makalu which is about 22 kilometres to the west of Everest. Okay. So it's in the same region. It's in a different valley though. Okay. Basically, I went with a friend of mine, Vebeke, who's from Norway, and we didn't want to do the hike in to the base camp. Uh, she'd already done it before. Do the what, sorry? The hiking to the base oh, the camp hiking. Okay. of Makalu. Yeah, like she'd already done the, the hiking before and she didn't really like it. Okay. We decided to acclimatize in the Kumbu before we went to the base camp. Flew in to Lukla, which is like, it's the same place you go to when you do the Everest hike. Okay, to go to Everest base camp? Yes, Okay. exactly. Actually, we spent about... 12 days uh, hiking there. We carried 20 kilo backpacks. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, it's a train for Makalu because on Makalu we didn't plan on having any support, so we're going to carry like all the gear ourselves. So, in support, you mean having a Sherpa? Yeah. Okay, so no Sherpas. Okay. During the hike, it was really awesome because we went to visit the Kumbu Climbing Center. I don't I think I told you about that last time that we were raising money for a project to do with the Kumbu Climbing Center. Mm -hmm. Did I talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, so the Kumbu Climbing Center is in Portse. They're just finishing building it. Like they've opened it now in June. It's an amazing place. Just can't even really fathom that they could build an amazing building like that in the middle of where it is. So being a climbing centre, does that mean that it's somewhere you can go to practice climbing? Basically a centre for training. Okay. For 15 years they started this project years ago, which was Jenny Anchor's foundation for her husband that died on Shishpangma. And they decided like, that the Nepalese climbers that worked on the mountains needed more training because, you know, they didn't really have 
a high level of technical skills. So okay. they started to run courses out of this village called Portse to help them become safer on the mountain, basically. Oh, okay, so for, this is for the locals? Yes. Oh, that's great. They've been running them for like 15 years now and that's part of the reason how they got to be world-class guides, I suppose, recognised. Anyway, so this sense has been in construction, I think, for almost 10 years, wow. <laughs> like a long time. It was designed by university students in the States, being project managed and built out of stone and cable and all this kind of thing. It's amazing. It has a bouldering wall, like areas where they can teach classes, a library, all the gear that they need to run the courses and stuff. So, yeah, it's really cool. And the project that Vibby and I were uh, helping raising money for is to have women's courses there run by women Nepalese women guides to have more women in the guiding industry. Is there not that many? No. <laughs> there's there's hardly any women climbing guides. Like there are some. Dawa Youngsum is also part of sort of helping raise funds for this and she will probably do some of the courses, like teaching them. Mm-hmm. So she's a qualified guy from Nepal. Yeah, but when you go trekking in that area, you notice all the trekking guides are men. It's pretty rare to have, like, you occasionally see women working in that industry, which is huge. Tourism industry in Nepal, I think it's the biggest industry there is in Nepal. Hardly any women working in it. That's We just want to encourage more women to have the opportunity. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah, it was cool to go visit the building because I'd never seen it and they were just finishing it. Huge amount of work. And then, yeah, we headed up to a place called Gokyo, which is 4,700 metres, I think, about. No, maybe higher, 4,900 (laughs) something like that it's like a little village next to a lake and we camped on a pass like a 5,400 meter pass and we woke up to the view of Everest and Makalu and Lhotse yeah it was amazing so that was really beautiful and yeah and then we came back down to Namchi which is like the Sherpa capital I guess at 3,400 metres. What you were teaching me last time is that you go up and come back, you go up and come back into altitude? Well, kind of. We did this hike to acclimatise to go to Makalu Base Camp because we then got the helicopter from Namchi across to the Hillary Base Camp, which is like the lower base camp on Makalu, which is 4,900. Okay. So we didn't want to fly straight to that height. Yeah. So we started there and then it's quite the hike to get to the advanced base camp, which is where all the sort of tents and things are, dining tents and all the expeditions hang out there. Can I just ask you, are there inexperienced people that don't understand that that could fly straight into that high altitude or do they not allow it? No, that you can do whatever you like. <laughs> what would happen? You can just fly into that height but you're not going to feel that great. Mm. And I'm assuming you won't be able to breathe very well. Yeah, because you haven't acclimatised to yeah. it. It wouldn't be as as good for you to do that. Like mm. I don't like you could just get sick and then have to fly straight out. Yeah, the okay. other thing. From there to the advanced base camp, which is actually really high. This is probably 
part of the reason why Makalu is pretty difficult is a really hard hike over millions of boulders. So not a path. There's no path. No, there's no path. It's like an old glacial moraine, you call it. So there used to be a glacier there, but it's not in there anymore. And now it's just like millions of boulders that you have to jump from one to the other. The hours on in. Meaning jump from the other. If you don't land it, what happens? Well, you don't. You've got to. <laughs> I mean, there's. I need a visual here. I need a visual. So we're going from boulder to boulder, but if you slip in between. It's all boulders. You don't want to not make it. Like, you have to. You just have to do that. That's the way to get there. All right. So one little slip. You don't want to slip. You just don't. You don't think about all the things that can happen while you're climbing. <laughs> okay. I'm just trying to get a visual here. So I'm on the right path with you. So if you yes. if you miss these little ones, you're in, you're in danger. So you've got to be very careful while you're taking these boulders. Boulder hopping. Yeah. It's sort of down in a valley. So there's boulders that fall down from above you. So you need to be really fast in some sections because they oh. could, if they hit you, like you would die. They're huge. Oh my gosh! The level of fear I have when I talk to you, my heart starts racing straight away. <laughs> well, it's probably one of the more dangerous parts of the whole mountain. To be honest, is okay. just getting to the advanced base camp. Lots of people or that can afford it, climbers that can afford it, just fly into the high base camp so they don't have to do that height. Okay. But you wanted to do this hike? Yeah. Okay. It's cheaper. It's cheaper to fly to the lower base camp, basically. Oh, okay. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, so it costs a lot more money to fly higher up because it's five. Yeah, so the higher base camp's 5,700 metres. And it's kind of difficult to explain this, but Everest base camp is like 5,250 to 5,300, mm-hmm. depending on where you are. You can kind of hang out there after climbing on the mountain and feel like you get a bit of a rest. Like you obviously don't recover completely because that's still quite high. Yeah. But this base camp is higher again, 5,700. It's very, very hard to recover. In fact, you don't really recover at all in between climbing up high and coming back down. Because there's just not enough oxygen to feed your body? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So once you arrive there, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of difficult because you don't, like, you can work hard on the mountain like we were carrying all our gear up uh, and then you come down to base camp, you don't feel any different. Mm, so you <laughs> like still you feel don't exhausted. actually get a rest. Yeah, yeah exactly. So yeah, that was hard. Anyway, we spent like a few days there. I'm just trying to think of how I can explain that to my listeners to understand. And I feel like if you've gone for a really long, long jog and you're out of breath and you feel like once you get your breath back, then you feel better that's the recovery, right? Where for you, it's like you're still losing your breath constantly, which is why you don't feel like you're recovering. Is that is that a good explanation for how people can kind of understand that? I've never really been very good at explaining what it's like to be at high altitude. I just know from my experience when I was on the 5,000 metre mountain that that's how I felt. I feel like I've just run a marathon and I can't breathe. And then once I started getting lower, I'm like, oh, now I feel like I can breathe more oxygen. And I'm like, okay. Well, the air actually feels thicker, actually does feel thicker. You're like, oh, my God, the air is so thick. 
Perfect strains like you, like we had like a really tiny hill, like nothing, just from our tent to get to the dining tent, and we'd start like walking up it. it would have only been like fifty meters away. Mm-hmm. We'd be like, <gasps> like just just walking from our like tent to the dining tent, and that's about all you could like in a day. If you have a rest day at the base camp, like you could just do like one thing. It'd be like, well, today I'm gonna have a shower. And that would be it. And then if you had another rest day, like today I'm going to wash some clothes. Like you couldn't do any more than one task in a day because you'd be exhausted. It's amazing what high altitude does to the body. And it makes you really stupid. You mean your brain doesn't work properly? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We had this like dining tent that we shared with a bunch of other, they just called it the international tent. All these climbers from around the world that were doing their thing. We would have had like maybe 20 people in there. Two of them from California. One was a rocket scientist <laughs> who builds rockets. Literally builds rockets, not like it's not kind of some has, kind of rocket has scientist. Has his own business building rockets. Wow. And another one who Imagine is a... You could never say a joke around that, but what do you think you are, some kind of rocket scientist? Yes. Yes, I am. And the other guy was a engineer who built satellites. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Super smart. And they were like trying to explain stuff to us. <laughs> and we're all just like sitting there like, uh, I don't even know if I would understand this at sea level, but at like 5,700 meters, you like really going to have to explain it for dummies because, <laughs> and even like the rocket scientist, he was like, oh, I've got all this time, you know, I can do all these maths and things. Equations. Yeah. Like building my rocket and like, I've got all this time on my hands. And then when we got to the base camp, like the higher base camp, because he was at the lower base camp as well. He's like, no, I can't even think to do any of that. Like, he's yeah. like, I cannot even think. Yeah, forget about it. it you know, it even dumbified him. Mm, a rocket scientist. A rocket, an actual rocket scientist. Yeah, correct. cool. <laughs> so we had to carry loads up the mountain, start to stock, like, our camps, I suppose. So we progressively carried our packs of stuff. <laughs> Which is like 20 kilos. Oh, Yeah, 20 kilos. And so we, we do this, what we call rotations, which is what everyone calls these like, trips up and down the mountain. First one was to take like all our gear to what's called crampon point because there's like a similar way to get up to the glacier. It was just all boulders. Mm-hmm. an hour and a half I suppose and I think the first time I'd have taken two hours but then it took maybe an hour and a half after that to get to where the glacier started. So when you're planning to hike a mountain well climb I should say climb a mountain like this do you know do you do research to know that there's these areas where there's all these boulders and how you have to get over them and how you have to train to be able to conquer these parts? personally don't research the mountain that much like it changes all the time anyway but like I'll know I'll know what heights the camps are at Mm -hmm. I don't really research like the routes on the mountain that much to be honest okay yeah because it like it does change too like every year it changes every season it changes and the route on the mountain changes as well so how do you know you're going in the right direction 
I mean, we have like a GPS as well. We can see on the map like where we're going, where the base camp is, and then we just like program into GPS where camp one is and camp two and all that kind of thing. So. Oh, okay. All right. So we're never going to get like completely lost. Yeah. Yeah. But we have gone the wrong way a few times. <laughs> the longer way? Yeah, you don't really want to extend more energy than you have to. It can cause arguments. We went to Crampon Point, double our gear, came back and then went up again and then went to Camp 1 for the first time, which is like 6,100 metres. Just below Camp 1, there's like a what's called like a head wall, a really steep section probably for like maybe 150 meters i suppose so you you, like there's ropes on that and you clip on to the rope with like a a handle that sort of goes up and then doesn't go down (laughs) quite hard to explain and then you like pull pull up on that on the pull up on the rope yeah exactly yeah because the slope is like ice so do you need to use picks no, no, you need to have crampons on. Like on your feet, once yeah. the first person puts the rope up, then you don't actually need to climb it with ice axes. Okay. You can just climb up the rope. You're quite experienced at ice picks though, aren't you, of getting up? Well, it's harder the higher you go. Yeah, like it's all relative. It's like, yes, I can climb ice at I don't know how many metres, like say 6,000, but then when you add – more height to that like it becomes a lot more difficult to be the person that's putting the rope up uh climbers and guides typically fix all the ropes they don't actually let anyone else do it but they do on everest as well so they'll have a big meeting in the base camp and they'll say like all the owners of the businesses or head guides or whatever will go okay well we have 80 clients and we have 10 clients and we have seven clients and you know who wants to fix what and that kind of thing and sometimes like one company will say well actually we want to fix to the summit because they've like to have that status mm-hmm. so that's how the ropes get there so basically we climbed up to camp one and then we went up to camp two which is six thousand three hundred and got all our gear there like two huge bags worth of it. And once we sort of had all our gear up there, then that was better because we didn't have to carry as much. Like, Yeah. It took two trips up to Camp 2 to get all, like, most of our gear up because we had to take our down suits up, sleeping bags, food, stove, uh, lots of stuff for summit day. The really heavy stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I guess I – so that probably took, like, a – couple of weeks because we have like a few days off in between trips up on the second uh, trip up to camp two we went higher like we went up to seven thousand meters and then we went all the way back to the base camp and that was sort of like before we were going to go to the summit okay so you went up and then you came all the way down to base camp yeah and what was base camp again five seven yes Okay, so that took a couple of days? Yeah, so we went up, like, so that trip we went to Camp 2. We spent a night and we had a rest day, spent another night, and then we went up to 7,000 metres. We started at what's called the Makaluwa, which is the hardest part of the climb to Camp 
three, which is at 7,500 meters. And it's just like a super steep rock and ice band, the like a not as steep snow band in the middle and then another steep rock and ice band above so it. So hold on a second. So you go up high and then you come back. That means you've got to go over all of those boulders and everything again, right? But the boulders between Advanced Base Camp and Crampon Point aren't as bad and it's not okay. as far as it is like the boulders from Advanced Base Camp to the lower base camp. Okay. We didn't want to go back down the boulders from advanced base camp to the lower base camp to have a like rest because it, like we just didn't feel like it was worth. Oh, okay. So this is the advanced base camp. Typically, before your summit attempt, you would go down lower to try to get stronger and then come back up. Mm-hmm. But we just kind of felt like there's no point going through all of that <laughs> and then having like two days rest and then going all the way back through the boulders we just didn't think it would be worth it yeah like I don't know whether that was a good decision or not to be honest at the end of the day I'm not sure if it would have made any difference but it might have Mm. yeah it's hard to say yeah I just think it would be it's like a waste going all the way up and then coming back all the way down and then you've got to do it all over again so wouldn't you just be as just yeah, tired like the rotations yeah you have to like you have to go up and back on the mountain to climb tires mm-hmm. like especially if you're not using oxygen if you're using oxygen then you don't have to one woman on the mountain Margaret who's from Perth and she's awesome she's 69 years old Amazing. I didn't know she was gonna be there We've been friends for like a long time. I think I told you on Everest she was on the summit at the same time as me. Oh, the same woman, yes. Yes. Oh, what a coincidence. Rocked up in a helicopter to the base camp. Like while we were there, and she was like literally her tent was like twenty meters from mine, and I just was like, oh my god, you're here! So that was awesome to have her there. So she like she uses oxygen, which is fine, Mm -hmm. and she just did one rotation up where she with her guy and Sherpas, and they went to camp one camp uh, one night, camp two one night. She came back down. Uh-huh. And then she went up to the summit and just used oxygen from camp two okay. all the way up and back. Where you were doing it without oxygen. So that means your acclimatization is so much more important. Yeah, you have to be like, you have to be acclimatized to the higher altitude. Otherwise, forget about it. Otherwise, it's really dangerous. Yeah, exactly. I mean, with oxygen, it can be dangerous too if you run out. <laughs> yeah. She had her own guy, like a really good guide and two Sherpas as well. So they were able to carry like a ton of oxygen for her Mm -hmm. and they weren't ever going to run out. So it's fine for her to do that. You just have to go with the right company. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like that is definitely one of the issues and that is pretty much why two people died and that was because the company didn't have enough oxygen for them and they ran out up high and they weren't acclimatized. Yeah. Wow. And that's why a lot of the people died on Everest as well. Yeah, which I was going to talk to you about that. We'll talk about that after you finish this story about your attempt. But, yeah, I definitely want to talk to you about what happened on Everest this last season. Well, I mean, like I witnessed the same stuff on Makalu and I have witnessed the same stuff on Everest and Lotsi and other mountains. It's not like it's been going on for a long time now. Anyhow, we had to wait like a long 
time because this season, like the jet stream was low above the mountains for like a really long time. So that affected Everest and Lotsey and Makalu. And you probably, I don't know if you'd been following, like if you'd been following one on Everest, you would know that. Like they didn't have enough weather windows to have like people summit on lots of days. And that's what led to lots of people summiting on one day. Oh, okay. There was a lot of high wind. It was super cold. It was also like a really, really cold season, a lot colder than normal out there. Finally got like a weather window, I think it was like 14, 15, 16 of May, and the team that were going to fix to the summit, the fixer ropes, they decided to fix the ropes on the 14th of May. Mm Mm-hmm. We decided to go off. We'd only had like maybe three, I think three days rest before that, perhaps. And then we went back up again. Oh, actually, I just had a thought that I have the altitudes of the counts wrong. So camp one was 6,300, which is what I was saying camp two was. Oh, <laughs> and camp two okay. actually 6,600 metres and camp three is 7,500 like because there's a really long way between camp two and camp three mm. and a huge like altitude gain but I was thinking no that's a really big altitude gain and then what's the summit 8,400 okay the way from camp two to camp three is like the crux because it's like a huge gain in altitude but also like super steep so when we went to go up We'd never actually, like, been any higher than 7,000 metres, so we didn't know, like, how hard it was above there. <laughs> but what we did know, like, from going to 7,000 metres was that it was really difficult. I was thinking at that point, because, like, we hadn't had any Sherpa support at all. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, like, at the end of the day, I didn't really care that much in terms of like my goal if we had some Sherpa support like my main goal was to sum without oxygen I suppose so I guess at that point like we decided it would probably be better if we could get some help like to carry the group gear to the high camp just so we had more energy like for summit day yeah so we managed to get like our tent Oh, what else? I think it's like our tent, our no, not the stove. I think it was just a tent and our two sleeping bags, basically. Like we got a Sherpa climber who was going up at the same time to take that. So that gave us like a little bit less weight in the bags, which was good. But I still like had a super heavy pack. Anyway, on the way to like the wall, Bibi managed to stop <laughs> the Sherpa and give them more gear so she actually had like less gear to take up the steep part which was probably like helpful and really smart (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) but unfortunately like I did like three quarters of the the way up before I was like I really actually need more help I managed to get the stove carried at that point so that helped a bit. And I can imagine that would be quite heavy. 
No, nah, this is though, like, I have, like, the light, most lightweight save you can get. So, like, it wasn't that heavy, but we needed a couple of gas canisters. Probably all up it would have only been, like, a kilo, but it makes a difference. Yeah, it totally does. Yeah, so at that point, like, Vivi was getting more and more tired and slower, and I sort of went out in front, and we, we kind of, like, got caught up in this Indian army team though like the biggest team on the mountain I think there was like 19 of them oh wow that's a big group yeah it was a huge group I was actually up near the top of the group actually ended up being in front of the group as like Vivi got more tired like they started overtaking her so she ended up being like back further down I didn't want to like leave my position (laughs) so we ended up kind of like stuck with this group around us and I kept sort of waiting for her. Like, I didn't want to leave her too far away. So I was like making sure I could keep seeing her. But because of that, it actually took 12 hours to get to the camp. And by the time we got up there, like it was like a really uh, windy plateau and super cold, like super, super cold and dark. And we were like, oh, my God, you know, we have to put a tent up in this. Like I don't even know, like minus 30 maybe or, or less. And I was like thinking, I'm actually going to get hypothermia. Yeah. Luckily enough, there was like a team that was going to the summit then. They said to us, sort of like, when we go, just use our tent. Oh, that's nice of them. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. So we didn't have to put our tent until the next day. So, yeah. So, like, we had originally like planned to climb up that and then go to the summit straight away, but there was no way we we're going to be able to keep going. Like we've been going for 12 hours already kind of thing. The weather report like ended up saying that that was okay because the 15th, so this was like the night of the 14th, but the 15th was good weather and then the 16th was going to be good weather as well. Okay. Ended up like having one more day there at that height, like 7,500. Had to put the tent up, which was epic. Oh my gosh. <laughs> in the morning, cutting a platform. Yeah, it was like, it's a really hard tent to put up as well. So are you ever tempted to just grab the oxygen and just have a little bit of oxygen or is that not a good thing to do? Well, we didn't have any. So oh, you didn't even no have any? no way to be tempted by it. No, like okay. we didn't carry any at all. So there wasn't that option. Okay. So basically, like we didn't have our own Sherpa. We didn't have any oxygen. We only had like the things with us, like a tent and a stove and our personal things that we could carry, like hardly any. Obviously, we had like first aid kit and stuff like that. So yeah, but like, like it's hard, definitely, because you can't push as hard because you don't have any backup. You don't want to be rescued off the mountain. Yeah, that's right. Like when you climb in that way, you have to be pretty conservative. So, yeah, you can't go as close to the line perhaps as you would if you had more support. The problem is like a lot of people don't know where the line is and they just go over the line. Yeah, so we spent the day there and then that afternoon, you know, started to get ready to go to the summit. And, I mean, that day, like I was so exhausted from the Makalula. And it's 7,500, well, that's what they call the death zone, I suppose, where you're just dying, basically. Mm. So once you get to that height, like, your body's just starting to die and you have to try to not spend so much time above there. So you definitely don't recover at all. So one day of, like, rest without – if you're sitting there and you're, like, 
on oxygen, just sitting in your tent, sucking on oxygen, then you would feel better, mm. you know. But mm. um, when you're not doing that, you're just sitting there like, yeah, you don't like – and even just – making the tent and moving all the things into the tent and finding snow and then melting snow to make water and like all that stuff like is super exhausting oh my gosh yes keep yeah. going i know i just think oh why why do this but anyway <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard to because it's so hard to explain but i'll say one thing that was that is good in a minute like the indian army had a huge footprint on the mountain okay water tents like 19 of them, there was a ton of Sherpas and Nepali climbers with them kind of thing. They ended up going the same day as us. Like they weren't going to go the same day as us. So they were using oxygen and they were going to get to camp three and then go straight away. But they took a lot longer to get to camp three. It actually took longer than us to get to camp three. So they probably took like 14 hours. So they were exhausted and they waited a day as well. So they were going the same day as us and well, starting in the, the, the night before kind of thing. So we ended up leaving after them. So we left at like nine at night, I think. And they left because I just personally didn't want to climb in the night as long because it's cold and when you're using oxygen that's fine but when you're not using oxygen you have like so much time in the dark in the cold like it's pretty depressing <laughs> so I was like oh we'll leave like a little bit later and yeah it was super cold I had on heated so like battery powered heated socks that did nothing but I also had boot heaters with batteries didn't even know there were such things yeah, so I had both. I have both on. Like they say on the packet, don't use these together like because <laughs> you'll burn yourself. Yeah. And, and like I literally only just managed to feel my toes because I had both on high. So my feet were warm and I had like every layer I owned on underneath my down suit, but I was still cold to the bone. I had my like mitts on with hand warmers and stuff inside my mitts and my hands were all right. But, yeah, like I was like a walking frozen skeleton, <laughs> except for my hands and feet. Basically, we got to, like, Camp 4. So there is, like, a Camp 4. It's, like, not that much higher but a bit of a tra- – like a fair way traverse. And I knew, like, we were going slow. I was just super exhausted. I felt, like – it's hard to explain, like, a, a bit, like, I know, like, my climbing partner – didn't really care as much about the goal of not using oxygen as I did. So I kind of felt a little bit responsible for that. Okay. That was a bit of a weight on my shoulders, I guess. We got to like camp four and there was two of the international climbers like from the dining, our, our dining tent that were there. They're from Taiwan and they'd just come down from the summit, but they went up that day like the 15th and one of them uh, this is to be confirmed I think he's the only one this season that didn't use oxygen had made it uh, they, they both made it one used oxygen and one didn't and they had a Sherpa but the Sherpa actually went down from that camp before they even went to the summit because he was not just he was way out of his comfort zone like yeah and so anyhow they'd made the summit and I said like we said to them, well, how far? Like we don't have oxygen, like how far 
would it be for us from here? Argo said, like the one who didn't use oxygen said 12 hours. And I was just like, there's no way that I can keep going (laughs) for 12 hours. Like I just knew it, you know. Yeah, and you know your body. You're, you know, this is what you do. You understand how you're feeling. So I guess it was the right call. Yeah, exactly. I knew I could go high. In in fact, like at that point, if the mountain had ended at 8,000, I would have done it. Like I know that. And I would have come back down and been okay. Like it would have been hard, but I would have just gone, oh, well, you know, I'll just go a bit slower. It's going to suck, but I I can make that. But when you said... 12 hours I was like I can't do 12 hours so I like I knew I couldn't do it so when you know you can't it's like oh yeah you know like I could go to 8,000 and turn around but but why like (laughs) why suffer more now I think oh yeah maybe I should have just gone to 8,000 and turned back and it's like but I still at the time I was like why would I want to suffer more when I know I can't make the top yeah your goal's not going to be succeeded so yeah yeah, so, but I still just said no. Like, I'm going to keep going for another hour or so and just see how I feel. Like, maybe that'll change. I don't know. So, maybe you'll get a we burst of energy. Yeah, you know, like maybe it's just because it's dark. Who knows? Like, yeah. maybe it'll change and, like, if I can get my head around it. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, so, yeah, we went higher up another 100 metres higher, maybe a bit more. Well, I'm not sure, to so maybe 7,600, 700, somewhere, somewhere around there. I was just like, no, there's, there's no way I can make the top. Like I knew that for sure. So I was like, just end the suffering. Yeah. Like, yes, I could go higher, but I don't see the point because I know I can't make it all the way. And if I tried to go all the way, I'm going to be coming down in a body bag or just left there. So there's no point really like pushing any further. Absolutely. Yeah. So I said to my climbing partner, like, you can keep going, but she didn't want to keep going either. She came back with me. Like, I mean, I didn't mind to go back on my own. Um, like it took a while to get back down because obviously like still tired and you know had to keep stopping and what have you Mm, and your body's freezing I hate that feeling when you're cold to the bone cold and it was like a bit windy as well yeah it was like it was just so cold like my feet were warm I know her feet weren't warm like at all so she took like a really long time in the tent to get her feet warm but I just like basically caught into my sleeping bag and fell asleep but she said like she was up for ages trying to keep it like get her feet to warm up I felt like the next day we woke up in the morning and I just like I felt really good about everything like I didn't feel like bad oh I didn't make the summer you know like bummed out like I was more like I made the right decision and I'm just happy like to have tried Mm. So you hadn't contemplated resting and trying again? No, like I I was just so exhausted. Like there's done. no way you can rest at that height. Yeah. Um, okay. For one, I wouldn't feel any different, like yep. waiting another day and the wind was coming in anyhow, like that yep. night. And from then it was going to be windy for like, uh, I think for a week. Yeah, the forecast like just had like high wind for a week after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't just go back up anyway. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like you made the right decision. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Like, I definitely feel like I made the right decision. You know, it was good because there was all the people that had summited or not the day before were going down. So we could 
sort of all go down together, like down the ropes. And, you know, there's a bit more safety in that, like having more people around. And so that was really good. We still had all our gear. So we had like really heavy, heavy bags going down. But so did like the Taiwanese guys because their Sherpa had gone. So why did you make a decision to not have a Sherpa? I guess like a couple of reasons. I would say the main reason is money. Okay. Fair I enough. know that sounds bad, but I didn't really have a big budget for the trip. I, I guess like I didn't really realize like how hard it was between camp two and camp three. And maybe if I'd known exactly how hard it was between those two camps, then I, then I would have like hired one. Between the two of you. Yeah. Yeah. Between the two of us, like just to help carrying loads. Cause I definitely feel like the carrying loads lower down on the mountain is really what added to being exhausted higher up. And and it's like a good lesson. Yeah. I'm not saying like I'm just a cheapskate, but I just <laughs> I wanted to try to try it without, like, and see if we could. Like on Lotsy when I was trying Lotsy without oxygen, like I was carrying a lot of gear and I was like feeling strong and the route's a little different and the heights of the camps are a bit different and that kind of thing and and it was working. This mountain's just a different route and I feel a lot harder, actually. It's a different type of beast. Yeah, I like I always feel like it's a harder climb than Everest outside in terms of technicality. Mm. Excuse my language, but I, I call it getting my ass handed to me on a plate. It's good to eat the humble pie. Yeah. Like it keeps it real and it should be. I'm not going to compare my experience to other people but there were people there that didn't come back from the summit and they pushed themselves too hard for whatever reason ran out of oxygen made the wrong decisions and they're they're still you know they they died up there yeah and that's the reality you know yeah I don't think it's a place to be a hero right you got to listen to your body exactly it's so easy to be overcome by summit fever and push yourself too hard. Guy from Canberra that you probably might have seen on the news. Was it uh, on Everest? On the north side of Everest, yeah. So he was trying without oxygen and, you know, he had two Sherpa and for whatever reason pushed too hard and he had like a chest infection, which is like crazy. Would never climb with a chest infection, passed out. Sherpa's had to like drag him down and he was just lucky that they could and he admitted like it was summit fever. Did he die or survive? No, he survived. Oh, he, he survived. survived because his Sherpa's dragged him down. Oh, okay. No, I only heard about the ones that didn't make it. I don't know. At the end of the day, like I prefer to be back here telling you the story about it. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you did make that decision and you are here to tell me this story. And I was following you on Instagram and following all the snaps and then knowing that you were getting closer to getting higher. And I knew that you'd be off social media for a certain amount of time because obviously there's no internet. So I knew I was expecting that. And then there was a long time that you hadn't been on. And so I hadn't seen anything. So I was starting to get a little bit worried and thinking, oh, please, please, I want to see something soon. I know. I think a lot of people... (laughs) I'm getting worried about it. But I just wanted to go back and like, because I forgot to tell you this story on summit day, because like it all just seems like hard work and horrible. And, you know, we were sitting in storms in the wind and freezing cold. And the most common question I got asked after your your episodes is why would she do this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
But what I like remember on the summit attempt, like because we were doing it in the night time, so it was at like nine o'clock at night. The the cool part, I guess, of like turning around then and walking back was that we could see like a clear view straight across to Everest. Because you're up high, like a similar height to, well, not quite the South Pole, but like looking straight, we're looking across at the South Pole and you could see all the climbers' head torches going up from the South Pole to the summit. Yeah, like in a line. And that was pretty cool. Just amazing view, you know, Mm. like perfectly clear night. You could see all the mountains, stars are out. Like, and it was just so weird, like thinking, wow, there's all these other people over there you know 20 kilometers away heading towards the summit of Everest yeah it's the view that you no one else can get and that's that moment in time which is special right when you just have that one moment to yourself and you're just like wow yeah exactly this makes it worth it it's at the end of the day like to me it didn't I guess people like can look at it like oh you know you've been on all these trips you know a lot of the time you don't make the top but I don't just I guess like climb only for the summit like I climb for the journey Mm. and it's like I've had so much time on the mountain through all of these attempts where I haven't made the top even yeah it'd be like 50% of the expeditions I go on I don't make the summit but there's all this time under my belt, meeting people on the mountain, you know, sharing these experiences, looking at the view, pushing myself. In fact, like the only other person that I met who was trying to climb without oxygen or Sherpa support, her name's April. Uh, she was on her own doing all that and it was another woman yeah like how cool is that though you know like she's a mountain guide from Colorado and awesome awesome woman and yeah she was just there on her own just carrying her loads up mountain and yeah super inspiring Mm. and she didn't make the summit either actually because of a bunch of reasons yeah so my question to you will you try and conquer Makalu again yes (laughs) <laughs> definitely I like learn a lot on that trip that particular mountain is just so awesome I'm not advertising it guys don't go there nobody else go there okay mm. I don't want it to be busy like Everest yeah but it also sounds like it's a very much for experienced climbers it's definitely not for, yeah it's such a beautiful mountain yeah it's so hard to explain like it's kind of like out on its own and it's mostly like looks down on every other mountain in that region yeah the views are amazing I'm going to get you to send me some photos and I'll put them on the Instagram page so people can check them out as well or they can go and follow you and you've got a couple up there I do I still I have a lot on my Facebook Ali Pepper Adventures I've got my whole album on there they can look at yeah, so next time, hopefully, I'm going to go with my husband. Ooh, that'd be nice. Yeah, it'd be fun. Like, it's always hard to go away and not have him with me. So, yeah, mm. he's always wanted to climb an 8,000 and hasn't had the time, but he's going to make the time. Yeah, well, that'd be great. That'd be nice. And I can't wait. I'll get you back on after you do that one and you can tell me all about it and how it is climbing with your husband. I know. It could be good. It could be bad. It'll be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) 
we'll have Sherpa support. I'm still going to try without oxygen, but yeah, I'm going to use Sherpa support this time. To be honest, like in terms of that as a goal, like I don't really care so much, Mm -hmm. but the without oxygen thing is the most important one to me. Yeah, absolutely. Now going back to Everest, it was all over the news that it was a really bad season with people dying and you mentioned a little bit earlier about it being because there were such short windows for weather yeah is it also because like there's just too many people going so like it's it's like it's a really complicated story and there'll be people that will have their own opinion and their own agenda because that could be their livelihood yeah. So there's like there's so many sides to the story. I mean, there's things that I've seen while I've been on the mountain that I think contribute to that. But this particular season, like, yeah, like we already talked about, like there wasn't that many days that people could summit. So that huge amount of people that were there couldn't sort of be spread out over a bunch of days. And that's what led to that traffic jam. Yeah, it looked insane. I know, it's crazy. And I guess like in terms of companies, like they could certainly decide not to summit on that day because when you're using oxygen, you you have a bigger sort of buffer in terms of how much wind you can summit in and that kind of thing. There are definitely more days that they could have summited, but they all wanted to go on like the best perfect day. Mm -hmm. So that could have been planned better. Yeah. Like in terms of people on the mountain, like I I have seen, you know, people as in clients that you think, oh, my gosh, like you really need to go with a different company that has like a higher level of service. So, for example, to save money, someone who's not that experienced as a climber would go with a cheaper company and that cheaper company is cheaper for a reason like they don't supply as much stuff as like a more expensive company would so a more expensive company will have you know two sherpa guides per client and higher high flow rates of oxygen and you know more oxygen bottles and all this kind of thing because they don't want to pay the money to go with that company they'll go with a with a cheaper company, but they really, like, shouldn't <laughs> go yeah. with a cheaper company. And I suppose then when there's a traffic jam, it means you're going slower, so you're going through more oxygen, and if Correct. you don't have that oxygen, that's when the risk is really quite high. Yeah, and climbers, like, let's say you're, you're a climber, but you are using oxygen, so, you you know, you have climbed other 8,000ers before, and you choose to climb with oxygen then you know okay well this is how long my bottle lasts on this flow rate like you're gonna know that so you're gonna know like you're gonna run out if you don't have that knowledge (laughs) Mm. because you're just trusting in someone basically to look after you yeah absolutely like I think of myself if I decided I wanted to climb Everest and I went and booked a company I have no idea about that and I would hope that those people taking me would know all of that but then like you said it depends on how much you spend yes but there's a lot of things in that so there's so many people that want to climb now but there's not enough sherpa that have the skills and so that was what i saw on makalu and this happens on everest as well it happens on all the 8000 meter mountains and that is that they just don't have enough qualified strong sherpa like full stop 
or or Nepalese climbers to work on the trip. So they put people on that don't have the skills or it's their first 8,000-metre mountain and, and they, they don't even know if they can climb it themselves, let alone, like, let alone guide. Mm. And many of them don't actually even speak English. So it's a recipe for disaster. Like there were a couple of 18-year-old Sherpa that were on Makalu who actually like when they were supposed to be guiding the summit and taking oxygen up just went and hid in a tent. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, because they were too scared to go up because they weren't strong enough. So they just hid in the tent and that's and, you why know, they're preserving a bunch themselves. of oxygen didn't go up, you know. Yeah. And that could have led to the fact that one of the people actually died mm. because they ran out of oxygen. You know, and you can't blame them. No, because they're preserving their because life. Because if someone says to you, hey, like you can earn $2,000, which is like 10 times the the yearly income, if you come on this trip, of course you're going to go, well, yes, because that's going to feed my family for however long. Yeah. So, so, like, it's complicated. And in terms of, like, the bigger operators in Nepal, they need to regulate themselves a bit better. But it's not just the Nepalese companies. If it's the livelihood of people, you know, then they're all going to have their interest a commercial company like a big international commercial company you know is going to blame other operators right yeah but like at the end of the day like it's everyone it's not just that's exactly right and everyone needs to step up and make because sure they're, they're training there as well. people yeah, properly exactly yeah and and some of the big operators like are helping it costs 40,000 US dollars every season to run the kumbu climbing center to train the guides mm-hmm. that go there yeah. Like Alpenglow, I mean, just mentioning this name because I think they should be mentioned, pay a lot of that. Like that's one company they, I think they spend like a percentage of all their, their trips in the Himalayas goes to the training guides. But there are no Nepalese companies that, that pay any money towards the KCC. If my listeners are wanting to donate to that training camp, is there ways they can do that? Yeah, just go to alexlow.org. So Alex, dot org, And that's the foundation that Jenny set up. And yeah, it's got all the information about the KCC there and the courses and everything. Okay, I might try and link that down below in the description. So if people do want to donate there, you can go research it and see if you choose to, and then the link is there. So, yeah, I mean, like, that helps. But, yeah, that's a, like, it's a big topic. <laughs> it's not just an easy problem solved. Yeah. yeah, like, the government, you know, they, they take the revenue from Everest. They're never going to put any serious restrictions on, on it. So they want to sell as many permits as they can. They're not going to limit numbers. Yeah. So I think at the end of the day, the operators are going to have to to come up with their own rules. Well, yeah, it, it's hard. And if you're not an experienced climber, you're trusting these people. But I guess our advice to anyone thinking or knowing someone that is thinking of doing it, do your research and do thorough research because it can be life or death. Oh, yeah, definitely. I have seen it firsthand. It's difficult because there are like climbers that will go with 
perhaps the wrong company and they need to have a higher level of service because they don't have the skills. Yeah, absolutely. But what they do is they ignore their their Sherpa guide or their Nepalese guide. So that's how many people have died and they've just said, no, I'm going to keep going and the Sherpa guide has gone, no, you need to turn back. And then they've said, well, I don't want to turn back and they've run out of oxygen and yeah, so if you are going to do it, trust the people and trust what they're telling you. And if they say turn around, turn around. The thing is, like, I know the Nepalese companies that have really strong Sherpa. And if you just look on the UAGM or, like, the Nepalese Mountaineering Association, you can find the guides there that have all their guiding certificates. And then you can track down what companies they work at. You'll find them. That's a really good tip. It's, it's as easy as that. They might work for a Western company or they might actually own their own company. So I, I do have like a, a lot of friends that own their own companies and they're at that level. I would trust them. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and your summit attempt with us. It has been a pleasure talking to you again. No worries. I hope everyone enjoys and happy birthday again. Well, thank you so much. And like I said, it is our one-year anniversary. So to all my listeners that have been with me this year, thank you so much. And if you love it, leave a review. Tell everyone how good I am. (laughs) Well, they should. You've worked so hard. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't quite climbed the mountain, but uh, I'm getting there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Ellie. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks for listening to With You Every Step, hosted by Michelle Lee. We do hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, make sure you tell everybody. If you didn't, nobody likes a Debbie Downer. Please subscribe to get up to date with our latest releases and give us a thumbs up on our social media at With You Every Step. We love to hear from you. If you have any questions or inquiries, head to the Contact Us page at our website, michellelee.com. That's also where you'll find all our blogs mentioned in the podcast. We love to hear from you and if we have inspired you to travel. Thanks for listening. Love life and adventure on.